So open your Bibles to Daniel 2. Daniel chapter 2. We're going to read part of it now in just a second, and then we'll read the rest of it as we work our way through the sermon. So just keep your Bibles open there. Remember, as we started uh, Daniel a few weeks back, uh, we talked about uh, its, its, uh, its, its outline and what that looks like. Uh, we dealt with some of the historical aspects. And then last time we met, we looked at Daniel 1, and there you heard the phrase said three times, the Lord gave, God gave, God gave. He gave His people into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, but He gave da- Daniel favor in the sight of the, the, the fellow that was over him, and then He gave Daniel and his three friends um, grace to actually excel in public education, in Babylonian education, so that way they would be able, from within that context, be able to minister, be able to actually work on Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Also remember, and this is crucial, is that Jeremiah 29 is written to the people who are in exile at this time. So Daniel actually, apparently, has read Jeremiah 29. You'll come to that sometime later when we get to Daniel 9, where he will actually mention that specific letter. And one of the crucial aspects of God's letter through Jeremiah is... I have sent you into exile. So where I have sent you into exile, seek the shalom, the welfare, the well-being of the city to where I have sent you into exile because then you will find your shalom. And you find Daniel actually working out Jeremiah 29, especially in the first six chapters. This is what it looks like, dear brothers and sisters, to live in exile and how to work that out. Okay? And so we're going to start with Daniel 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, so out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me by standing. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Some of you have had those nights. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. At this point now, Daniel turns from Hebrew. Now it's all in Aramaic from here all the way to the end of chapter 7. They said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we shall show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me the gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we shall show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me all until the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it 
to the king, except the gods whose dwelling is not with with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel and Daniel went in and requested the king, to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Dear friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God, who changes times and seasons, who removes kings and sets up kings, bless us with your favor as you did with Daniel, that we may be more amazed with you, Daniel's God. Amen. You may be seated. Another side note that I mentioned the other day, that as you're reading Daniel, Daniel is not meant to inspire you to dare to be a Daniel, as the old hymn says. It's actually to amaze you with Daniel's God. And so I hope that as you read this, you always keep that in mind and work through it. My friends, there are a number of ways that I can approach Daniel chapter 2. I can spend a week of Sundays unloading all that is in Daniel 2. So if I don't approach Daniel 2 the way you would like me to have approached it, give me grace. Two side notes. First off, chapter 2 is the first chapter where the Babylonian lingo, language, is going to be used, Aramaic. And I mentioned this the other day when we talked about how much of Daniel's action in Aramaic is chapter 2 through 7 and why that was the case. Very likely the case is so that the Nebuchadnezzars and Belshazzars and even the Dariuses later could actually read this, right? Because they, they couldn't read Hebrew. Aramaic is a sister language, but it's far enough different that it's really a different language. And so it's probably very much in place so that everyone would remember, right? They'd be able to read it if they wanted to. So it's very likely the case. But here's where the language in the originals actually changes from Hebrew to Aramaic. Secondly, chapter 2 will be, as you probably know if you've read ahead, is a vision or dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that is very similar in the way it breaks out to Daniel 7. There are, there's a, a vision of, of a statue, and Daniel will interpret it, and it will be four kingdoms, and then there will be this fifth kingdom that comes out of nowhere that will dominate all these kingdoms and destroy them. You go to Daniel 7... It's a totally different vision, the exact same structure. You need to keep that in mind that there's lots of parallels as it narrows down to chapter 4 and 5, and there's a reason for that, and it should be easy for you to decipher that reason. It's pounding this home. And so there's just some details as we get ready to get in. So first off, there's a catch-22. You saw it in verses 1 through 16. Anybody remember watching, reading the book Catch-22 or watching the movie Catch-22? Right, impossible situation. You lose either way, right? That's a catch-22. Well, clearly the catch-22 in verses 1-16 through is obvious. The king does not remember the dream at all. And he wants the dream retold to him to validate its interpretation. That's what he says when you down to verse 9. Therefore tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. 
Now, the unremembered dream has walloped the king. I mean, it has troubled him deeply. It left him sleepless. It bothered him enough that he tossed and turned all night long. And as the morning light came up over the eastern horizon, he jumps up and he calls his therapist and his counselors immediately. Verse 2, come in here and help me. Right? So that's the magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and, and so forth. I think Wendy Wider in her Zondervan Evangelical Covenant, uh, uh, Commentary on the Old Testament gets it right when she says this, quote, For the moment, the narrator leaves us with the feeling that Nebuchadnezzar is out of his head and a, a feeling that the rest of chapter 2, 1 through 12, and chapter 3 will validate. This is a king of extremes, a maniacal monarch who severely overreacts to situations that seem like business as usual in the Babylonian government, in a quotation. I think that's important to recognize. Nebuchadnezzar is not, his head's not screwed on well. Okay? And you can't not, you just can't miss it. He is immediately overreacting all the time. Right? And we, especially when you get to chapter three, all that happens in chapter two is going to go to his head and his ego is going to pop out even more for various reasons. I think that's important to remember. Not all leaders have their heads on straight. You just leave it there. Right? It's always possible that that's the case. And that's the case here. But the king's magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, whatever the Chaldeans were, well, not, nobody knows, we can guess. Probably just old, traditional Babylonian uh, counselors of some kind. But the magicians, the king's magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, they are in a total quandary. How can we interpret a dream that you don't even remember? What? And now our lives are at stake? Impossible. Or, what was it? The, inconceivable. That's what the guy said in Princess Bride. That's it. Okay. So without the one, without the dream, they cannot do the other. They cannot interpret it. In fact, they are spot on correct. Verse 11, the thing the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. That statement will come out of, will, will, in its own form, will come out of Daniel's mouth when you get over to, chapter, to verses 27 and 28. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And so they were absolutely correct in verse 11, and Daniel will affirm that when you get to verse 27 and 28. But for now, notice the king, not calm, not level-headed. Instead, he blows a gasket, Anybody ever blown a gasket? You ever know, you ever know what happens? That oil and water starts mixing in your car and then out the back is this huge steam splattering oil and transmit whatever out the back end. I blew a gasket once. I know what it's like. He blows a gasket and smoke starts coming out both ears, so to speak. And he decrees with the queen of hearts, oof, with your heads, right? He's rip them apart from limb to limb. Verse 13. It's end of this difficult situation that Daniel, remember chapter 1, that Daniel, who has wisdom and God's favor, is going to 
continue to obey God's letter through Jeremiah 29. And he is going to seek the peace of the city where God sent him into exile. And so he steps in and he finds that God's mercy to him goes beyond him and reaches out beyond him. That's verse 15 and 16. He stops, asks questions, and the the death sentence is put on pause. That means all of these pagan enchanters, magicians, and so forth are going to benefit, are already benefiting from Daniel. And so God's mercy, he, him, the mercy for him also begins to go beyond him and impacts the magicians, the enchanters, and so forth. It's important to, cat, to get that. And so verses 1 through 16 is really the catch 22. But from there, it makes the cornerstone really clear. The cornerstone picks up then in the next verses, verses 17 through 24. So read along with me from verse 17 to 24. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Verse 19. I find that interesting. Where is God in the story? Where is He in the picture? Is He seeable? Is He visible? No. It's in a dream. It's at night. He tells Daniel that He doesn't show up at the front of the stage. He's like behind the curtains Helping Daniel, I appreciate that, because God very often in our lives is not out front in the sense of doing mighty miracles and so forth. Most often, it's the unseen God who's alive and active. And that's what we ran across in chapter 1. And so then, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. The cornerstone is basically that the magicians, the enchanters, and the Chaldeans, they were correct. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, they were wrong and right at the same time, right? Instead of gods, there's one god, but they were right in the sentiment. And so Daniel and his three friends plead God's mercy that they might not be destroyed with the magicians and enchanters and so forth, and God answers, and God answers in unseen ways. That should encourage us, dear friends. God answers in unseen ways. And so Daniel, instead of strutting around with the answer, strutting around and bragging, he instead breaks out singing God's praises, verses 20 through 23. 
And so verses 20 through 23, this prayer of praise, this song of celebration, centers us in the story. It is the centerpiece of the whole story. We get lost over the image. No, this is the centerpiece. Because it reminds you exactly what the vision is talking about. That God is the one who sets up presidents, prime ministers, and kings, and He takes them down. He's the one who is in control. Not the democracy. Not powers. He is. Does that make sense? That's the centerpiece of Daniel. And so the prayer is all of that. It's that centerpiece. It's extremely important. For all of the arrogance and all the egotism and all of the maniacal extremes of Nebuchadnezzar, God is over all and He rules. <clears throat> it's, a truth that Nebu- <clears throat> Excuse me, it's a truth that Nebuchadnezzar has not accepted and may not fully accept. And it's a truth, by the way, that Pharaoh and his magicians didn't accept. There's a lot of overlap between this scene and what happened in the early parts of Exodus. Every presidential election season, every midterm election season, these verses, specifically 20 through 23, should be read in all of our homes, should be reviewed, should be received. This is who's really in control. No matter what the rhetoric and what the PR says. And so Daniel then spreads the mercy, God's mercy that he's receiving, he spreads it around. Notice how everybody else benefits. So do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. God's mercy on Daniel goes beyond Daniel to the welfare and the shalom of his pagan neighbors because of the goodness of God. That's the cornerstone. This is the cornerstone scene, verses 17 to 24, and then comes the clarification. And it's verses 25 through 45. So read along with me. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now just stop a moment. So back in verse 16, it says that Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the king. The chances and very likelihood is that he didn't go in and see the king face to face. He went up the chain of command and got to somebody who could talk to the king and get the king to do that. What's funny is Arioch's statement, I have found. You know the story. Okay, yeah, right, dude. Arioch didn't find him. Daniel came to him. But he says, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. He's, he's bragging a bit and trying to take credit. It's just like Acts 23, or 26, or 23, excuse me. You may remember the story when Paul was in Jerusalem. And he's, he starts, um, he comes into Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and then the mob, right? The, the city riots against him, picks him up, starts beating him up and pounding on him. And then the Roman tribune hears about this ruckus and he comes in with his forces. He doesn't know who Paul is. He doesn't know what he's about. In fact, as you read that story, you realize he, he assumes that Paul is actually an Egyptian, right? He comes in and rescues Paul, takes him up the stairs, lets Paul speak a moment. It gets bad again. He takes him into the building, and then he gets ready, after he shackles him up, gets ready to torture a confession out of him. 
You remember this story? And Paul says, is it legal to torture a Roman? Oh, no. Right? But then when you go to read the Roman Tribune's letter to, uh, to the, the, the local magistrate, Festus, I think it is, he says, um, Your Honor, me and the soldier boys, we rescued Paul from the frenzied crowd uh, uh, because we found out he was a Roman citizen, and so we went in there to get him, right? So he's trying to protect his hide. Arioch sounds just like that. He's trying to protect his hide here. Let's go on with Arioch's statement and what happens here. Verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. I'm surprised that Nebuchadnezzar lets him speak any further. But he does. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and who has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And so now Daniel's going to tell him more than what he asked for. He's going to tell him why he had the dream, what he was thinking before he had the dream. Here it is. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, after your time. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. I appreciate Daniel's humility. Maybe more people in office and who are, who are at, you know, doing administrative stuff and, and for public office need to have that humility. This mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And so now he's going to tell the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of, its, of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image. So it came from outside of the image, and it came and struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given, oh, we're back to given, has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. 
And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And so there's the clarification. So notice as you begin first that Daniel preaches the truth of God to this man who thinks he's a God. Verses 26-30. through 30. He's preaching to a man who thinks he's God. Nebuchadnezzar is full of himself and thinks himself divine, as most kings did in that day. He preaches the truth. There's nobody on earth who can figure out what you're talking about, implying not even you, which he already knew. It's only this God. right? So he's preaching the truth to him. Notice further that Nebuchadnezzar's requirement in in verse 9, tell me the dream and I will know that you can show me its interpretation, is actually played out. I find it very interesting that God actually is willing to condescend to Nebuchadnezzar's criteria. He didn't have to, but He does. Okay, I'll tell you the dream and the interpretation. And that's all played out here as as Daniel recounts the dream in verses 31 through 35, which therefore is going to validate the interpretation, the clarification as accurate. Further, Daniel clears up the meaning of the dream. Okay, so he sees this dream, this statue, and if you've already read chapter 3, you know where things are going to get headed to, right? But he sees the dream of this statue, that is the four metal parts, and how it ends, the stone and all that. Now Daniel's going to clarify that dream. He not only told the king why you had the dream, these were the thoughts in your head, here's the dream, and so now here's the clarification. Here's what the dream means. And so first off, he gives King Nebuchadnezzar his honor. That's verse 37 and 38. You, O king of kings, you are the head of gold. I'm sure that stokes Nebuchadnezzar's very large ego, right? But he gives him his honor. He gives honor to whom honor was due. God is the one who gave you. In fact, he says it twice. God gave you this. I think we need to always remember that. God gave you this power. God gave you this kingdom. But there's a, another subtle statement in here. When he moves on, and he talks about the next part of uh, silver, he says these words, another kingdom inferior to you will arise after you. Now think about that statement to a guy who's full of himself and thinks himself powerful, more powerful than everybody else and as he's a God. Just think about that statement, after you after you. What is that all about? Very clear. 
suddenly reminding, suddenly reminding the king he has a best used by date stamped on his life. Too bad the king wasn't listening too clearly. Chapter 3 shows he, had, he didn't hear any of this, that part. <laughs> and so then the second part of the statue is Dan, Daniel's clarifying it. The second two parts, the silver and then the bronze of the statue, they're mentioned, but they're mentioned quickly and in passing. Um, there's not really much to tell you other than that the second kingdom will be inferior, the third kingdom will rule over all the earth, just very small details. He just zooms past it and he gets to the fourth kingdom. He gets to the fourth kingdom and notice that it is made out of iron. Think about that. It is made out of iron at first. Iron, strong iron that's unglamorous. Iron compared to silver is not always the glamorous metal. You know what I mean? It's not glamorous. But then as he's looking down the image, the iron moves all the way to the foundations, to its feet, and you notice all of a sudden that the iron is mixed with clay. That final part of the dreamy image is fixed with, is a picture of, as Daniel goes on to say, a picture of strength and brittleness. And notice that part of the brittleness is because they will marry, that iron kingdom will marry across ethnic lines, but it will not be strong enough to keep the kingdom glued together. Now I'm going to test some of your history here. It's in the living memory. It was only about 20 years ago, so some of you will catch on to this. It's just like Yugoslavia, where the Soviets came in and they physically forced the Croatians, the Slavs, the Bosnians, and the Serbs to all live in peace with one another under the Soviet iron fist. You will or you will be shot, period. That's how they did it. And so, all four of those groups and others began to intermarry and they intermarried, and they also went to marketplaces together and stuff, but they intermarried for, for a few generations. But once, once the Soviet muscle crumbled, that forced unity disintegrated. And what happened in Yugoslavia? War broke out with all of the ethnic cleansing. Do you remember those days? With all of the ethnic cleansing. It's very much a picture of the kind of thing you see here with these feet mingled with iron and clay. So clearly, as you're looking at the four, the four uh, metals, you can tell, that, and he tells you, that these are four successive kingdoms that are being pictured here. And if you follow the successive international superpowers at that time, starting with Babylon, then you have these four kingdoms being pictured. Babylon, gold. That was about the 600 B.C. time frame in the 500s. Then came the, Medi the Median Persian realm. That was silver. Then you have bronze. Well, the next superpower was Macedonian. It was Alexander the Great. Anybody remember Alexander the Great? Not personally, I know. But Alexander the Great. And then when he died at a very young age, 33, he had a huge kingdom. He went all the way to Afghanistan. Did you know he went all the way to Afghanistan? He even set up, um, he set up uh, detachments in, in, uh, out in Afghanistan. They still find Greek coins in Afghanistan to this day. That's a huge kingdom. He covered all the earth, right? But then when he died, his kingdom then was divvied out to heirs, to different heirs, uh, regional heirs. So there's your bronze. And then finally comes, what's the next kingdom? 
Rome. Rome. That's the iron. That's the iron and clay. Now, I know there are some that would disagree with that. You can go read the commentaries. It's easy to find anyone who disagrees with me, and that's fine. But that just seems to be the clear, easy distinction of what uh, definition of what he's seeing there. It's those four kingdoms. And so then there's a fifth kingdom. There comes a fifth kingdom. It's one that has no relation to those four kingdoms. It didn't come out of any of those metals. Has no connection to them. In fact, it comes from outside of those four kingdoms. It's, it's a stone cut out of a mountain, cut out by no human hand, said twice, by the way. Said twice so that you never forget it. This is not a human-made kingdom. It's not a human-made kingdom. And it brings down this dreamy image, outlasting, outliving, outexpanding all four of those kingdoms. It starts out as a stone, it says. Starts out as a stone, and then it grows into a worldwide mountain, verse 35. Now my friends, you're good Bible readers and thinkers. What kingdom? was begun solely by God, without human hands, and came in the time of Rome, outlasted Rome, outlasted Macedonia, outlasted Medea Persia, outlasted Babylon, all together, add them all up, outlasted them all. Steve! Yes, score for Steve! Exactly! God's kingdom! It outlasted and it has outgrown all of those kingdoms. Now, if you want to know where we are in the picture, we're actually in there. This may not be the most glamorous, but we're in there. It's back there in verse 35. Notice what the stone does. The stone that struck the image... Next word. Became. Verse 35. I hope you're with me. Come on. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. My friends, we are the became. We're not the great mountain. Right? The kingdom started as a stone. Think of the Lord and 12 disciples, and then 500 saw Him at the resurrection, and then the day of Pentecost. It's a stone. It's not yet a great mountain. So we're in the became. That's us. You, me, our kids, our grandkids, our parents and grandparents were in the became. In some way, unexplained, notice that humans have nothing to do with this. Some way, unexplained, the stone that was cut without human hands grows of its own power, maybe outside power, it doesn't tell us. It grows and it grows bigger and bigger. But its worldwide success is secured. It will dominate all the world. A stone not cut out by human hands grows without human ingenuity. In fact, verse 45, the God of heaven, I'm sorry, verse uh, 44 and 45, yeah, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Who sets up the kingdom? God does. Right? We'll come back to an application here in just a minute to that. But you need to get that and see what that's actually telling Nebuchadnezzar. And what that's telling anyone else who thinks that they rule the world. 
So then there comes the clarification that's finalized with assurance. Verse 45, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is certain. And this then brings the close. And the close is verses 46 through 49. Let me read that. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Well, I'm glad he was able to make that confession. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, and Daniel made a request for the king, and he appointed appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Notice the close. The close. The king does not know how to handle all of this, uh, and it's going to go to his head, as you're going to see when we move to chapter 3. But for now, he starts out by giving Daniel accolades and adorations, but he acknowledges with probably far truer words than he himself knew what he was saying, that Daniel's God is amazing. And then notice Daniel's response. It's Jeremiah 29. Oh, you're making me prefect. I'm going to appoint these others too for the good of the kingdom, of this failing kingdom that will one day pass away. This pagan kingdom. I'm going to seek the shalom, the welfare of this city to which God has made us exiles. Because in its welfare, we will have our welfare. Notice what Daniel does. Notice what he doesn't do. I'll never serve this kingdom. No, he doesn't throw any kind of a... He doesn't grandstand. He just says, and he does it. So God's mercy and grace to Daniel and his friends therefore extends outward all of this kingdom. So there's the close. Well, some thoughts here. I've got three. So first off, tell me again who is in control here? Yes. And that's the title of this whole series. That's the whole point. Kings are not in control here. Prime ministers are not in control here. Presidents, presidential candidates, they're not in control here. Governors are not in control here. Senate is not in control here. The Congress is not in control here. Supreme Court is not in control here. My friends, God is in control. And you and I need to always come back here and come to be wowed by Daniel's God. Forgive us, Lord, when we are more fearful of political powers than we have fear of You. Be wowed by Daniel's God. Secondly, so here we are in the 6th century B.C. and God is already talking about you and me and Jesus. Became. The stone became a great mountain. Now it's rather cryptic. It's clearly subtle, but it's there. It's the same image that Jesus tells of the kingdom that Bill read. He's talking not about your conversion and my conversion, as sometimes people read that. He says, this is a parable of the kingdom. The kingdom that smashes the toes as a little stone and became a great mountain. And the imagery, the whole story he tells is that the farmer has no idea. He's just looking, wow, I planted these seeds. and Well, look at there. It's starting to sprout up. How'd that happen? Oh my goodness, look, it's starting to grow. Now wait, I didn't do anything to make it grow. I hope you're going to pick up what I'm putting down. I didn't do anything to make it grow. It's growing, right? God put that power in there. It's growing and he's amazed. The farmer 
is utterly amazed, and all he can do is at the end is harvest. My friends, that should remind us. I, I'm worried when I hear Christians say, you know, we need to grow the kingdom. Dear friends, you're not God. You don't have that strength and power. Now, God brings you into the kingdom, hallelujah, and somehow He uses what we do to be part of a growing it, but I don't have control of that. I'm like the farmer looking at the, the field, the seeds growing, and I'm going, wow! And that's what you should be, by the way. You should be the wow people. Everybody should walk around going, wow! Look what God's doing! Wow! And that's exactly right. And I think that this helps us to fathom what Ralph Davis states. And I hope this is in your sermon notes because I meant to put it in there if it isn't. He puts it this way. We are to serve where we have been placed within the fading kingdom. Babylon was a fading kingdom. We are to serve where we have been placed within the fading kingdom as we go on waiting for the final kingdom. The, the stone became a great mountain that filled the earth. We serve where we have been placed within the fading kingdom as we go on waiting for the final kingdom. Here's a third thing. This whole became, became a great mountain, to me, adds extra texture to something that Paul said. And I was delighted that Bill's beginning of the worship service actually quoted 2 Timothy 1, verses 9-10, through because I have it here that I was going to do. Did you see my notes? It was great. When Paul says God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which were given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, it had now been made manifest in the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, etc. You read Daniel 2 and you realize where the became, you know, 600 years before Christ even comes to earth, that God already has us in mind. Well, if He has us in mind there, then it's not a far stretch to realize, oh, He's actually already called us and already had planned to save us before the ages began. Because of why? Because we're great? No. In spite of all that, He knew what we were going to be. He chose to save us anyways. And that should make us rejoice. So dear friends, be wowed by Daniel's God. Let's pray. Lord, You are worthy of our wows, our amazements. Forgive us, Lord, as I mentioned earlier, forgive us when we are more fearful of political powers and military powers and conspiracies than we are fearful of You. As R.J. Rushdoony one time said, when we do that, we become Satanists, fearing evil more than we fear God. Have mercy and forgive us. Lord God, may we Always remember you are in control. You are on the throne. And nothing is outside of your control. May we walk in that confidence with joy and humility. And may we, in that confidence, serve where you have placed us in this fading kingdom as we look to the kingdom, the final kingdom that is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.